0: Hey, everybody, it's Bill Faulkner again. Welcome to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Super excited today to be talking with uh, someone who is rapidly becoming one of my favorite people and and a relatively new rod building friend, and that is the legendary Mike Garone of Garone Custom Rods. So by way of introduction, Mike's been building rods for more than 15 years. Uh, He's a very active member of the NURBS. Uh, the northeastern rod builders, and uh, you can see him at ICRBE and a lot of those events. Just uh, excellent, very, very talented rod builder. Uh, does a lot of work uh, helping new builders, helping people sort of tighten up and improve their skills. Uh, he's been published in Rod Maker Magazine. He's been in the cover on the cover of Rod Maker Magazine. Uh, you can hear him featured on the Tide Chasers podcast. He's obviously the the owner and the man behind the Garone custom rods and tackle. Uh, and he, he really kind of, he can build anything, but specializes in saltwater rods and tends to favor, you know, kind of these active styles of fishing, uh, jigging, top water, uh, you know, live bait. Um, and just really a, uh, I would say Mike's focus is he does as good a job as anyone I've ever seen merging the high performance uh, hi, uh, with the artistic, the highly artistic, right? So, and and recently, this is something I'm very excited to talk about. Uh, as we sit here recording this right now, we're only a week post ICAST 2023. And Mike had the tremendous honor at ICAST to be recognized by Fuji Japan uh, as a global uh, rod building ambassador under the Fuji brand. This is uh, something that's never happened before for people outside of Japan. And Mike is one of six rod builders in the world outside of Japan that has uh, gained this honor and the coveted ruby ring titanium frame guide trophy from fuji so congratulations on that mike tremendous honor and welcome to the mastering rod building podcast
1: thanks so much for having me bill i'm really excited to be here
0: yeah well i'm excited to have you you know you and i have talked about this a little bit off camera but it's it's really interesting to me so i've i've been going for years a few times a year on these uh, slow pitch jigging trips these overnight multi-day trips on the yankee caps out of the legendary Yankee Caps with Captain Greg Mercurio out of uh, Key West. And um, Mike, as a builder, I got to know you by your rods. Uh, and for several years, several of my buddies, who uh, some of whom I built rods for, some of whom I fish with, very discerning anglers that want something really high performance, uh, have some of your rods in their in their collection, in their quiver, right? And um, people like uh, Alex Scott, Alan Rosenberger, these guys are the Outer Banks, uh, Rob Jenkins. Anyway, I, so I've seen a lot of these rods. And, you know, my opinion in four bucks, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. But if you've never seen Mike's work, it's technically excellent. Very clean. Very well done. Um, just really a lot of attention to detail about all aspects of balance and performance. And just really, I've learned some things looking at his rods. Really good stuff. And then he also has... Just a really distinct and unique aesthetic. Um, I tend to be a really gifted copycat. I'm not so much of an innovator, but I have profound respect for people that uh, that have a distinctive style and kind of generate these new trends and things. And like the, the guy who comes to mind for me immediately is like a Jim Trilicus or something. You know, you look at one of those rods and you're like, man, that's a that's a web spinner custom rod. There's no doubt, and you can see his influence in other people's work to me your work is is like that it's very distinctive very unique very visually appealing you're just a, a true creative artist and uh and there's even people like I was recently teaching a an advanced rod buildings techniques class uh at mudhole in Orlando and and one of the instructors Jake Hutchison who runs social media for them the mullet man actually taught people how to do a garone style rap so you know now you uh, you have become part of the Nomenclature and lexicon of the industry. So you have arrived, my friend. Congratulations.
1: I'm gonna have to hit him up for some royalties on that. I guess. There right? we go.
0: Hey, <laughs> absolutely, you should. And good, good luck squeezing any blood from that turnip. Maybe he can cut you some locks <laughs> of his hair, and you can weave it into your beard. I don't know. I'll
1: trade it. I'll trade him some beard for uh, for some mullet. <laughs> there we go. That but, works. Uh, honestly, I'm a I'm a great copycat too. I guess uh, my style really just incorporates a lot of guys' different styles. You mentioned Jim. Uh, from the west coast his right. stuff is amazing and it is. Uh, like i do a lot of crim bands on my guide wraps right i really stole that from a lot of those west coast guys and then yeah. you know our good friend billy Vavona. yeah the thread wrapping stuff with the decorative wraps i yep. you know really got started with that through him and kind of you know tweaked it and i've made my own style with it um i do some different things than other people yeah one of the funny things people might not know about me is that I'm, I'm actually colorblind. Well,
0: I was going to say that's where I was going next. I was like, there's two things When
1: I finally got to
0: meet you after knowing you by your work and your reputation alone for maybe like 10 years, we finally meet. And, uh, one is you're younger than I thought you would be. For some reason, I was like, this guy's got to be like in his mid to late 60s or something. He's been building forever. And actually, no, you're a young guy. You're way younger than me. Uh, I was impressed by that. And then the other thing you told me that shocked me was this, that you're you're partially colorblind or colorblind to a degree. Tell everybody.
1: So uh, I don't know if you guys remember doing those uh, those little, I forget what they're called, but it's got the dots.
0: Yeah, the little dot test where you see numbers or not. right? Yeah.
1: So, I see color, I just mix some of them up. So, one of the okay. reasons my wraps look different than other people, I don't think it's because uh, I see them differently, but it's because a lot of people will use, you know, because of Billy really, uh, right. Madeira thread in the in the decorative wraps. But then because of the silicone in the thread, they're using a Fuji or a, a Pro wrap or some other sort of rod building that doesn't have for the guide wraps. Yeah. And uh, for me, Because I mix up blue and purple and some blue and green and and different things, I decided to just go, I'm only going to use Fuji thread because if I'm using this spool on the deck wrap, I'm going to use this spool on the guide wraps. And I'm not going to screw it up. So, this is a great but, uh, plan, and everybody should follow
0: it. I, all of the, you, if you want to wrap like colors. Mike, go to Fuji Thread exclusively immediately. Boom. Please, please, Done. and thank you right now. Don't. And now
1: we've got plenty more colors and more to come. So, it's oh, yeah, exactly. Before. Exactly.
0: Wait, don't let that cat out of the bag. I don't know when this one's coming out relative to that thread one, but uh, it's been recorded. Yeah. So, it'll probably beat <laughs> this one out. But no, that's, that's good. And thank you yeah. for you and Billy's help coming up, the NURBS help coming up. With the new colors because that was super helpful so you know it's so interesting i have another friend really gifted builder jared taylor builds uh in indiana under jt rods and he is uh also colorblind and his wife carly helps him pick colors and I, i i had the pleasure of meeting your wife amy at icast and she was we were talking about this and she was saying sometimes she'll she'll check you or help uh help you uh pick colors so i guess the moral of the story is If you're a rod builder and you're colorblind, it's okay. You can still be brilliant. You just need to marry really well. And uh, I'll kick your coverage and make sure someone will help you pick colors. (laughs) Yeah,
1: multiple reasons for that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: But but it's fascinating. I mean, I I don't know that we could ever kind of – quantify this or understand what's going on but you clearly have a really good eye in my opinion for color and contrast and 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 sort of proportions and shading and things and so it was just so interesting to find out about the colorblind thing but so i ask all of my guests uh i guess you know so you don't escape this uh i'm fascinated to know how you got into fishing so talk to me about that before we get into today's topic which is the things you need to know about setting up guide trains and, and generally how a master, how an expert who I can vouch does as good a job as anybody I've ever seen setting up guide trains um, of all different types. That's the topic. But before we get into that, so you have some street cred, you know, and we get to know you a little bit beyond that you're colorblind and are smart enough to use nothing but Fuji thread and that the mullet man owes you some locks of his flowing mane. How'd you get into fishing?
1: Well, so I'll say this, uh, first and foremost, it's definitely an unlikely story. Yeah. Unlikely and likely that I got into fishing because okay. my father hates fishing. Really? Um, he, yeah. So he grew up around the water. He actually, uh, commercially, uh, dug Lambs in Long Island when he was, uh, in high school and college, but made his, his way most the, through most of college doing that. Ah, uh. so he enjoys the water. But he's, uh, especially the, those older styles of fishing, where it was just like sit and wait kind of stuff. Right. He's a very impatient person. He's always got to be doing something. And right. I, I did inherit some of that from yeah. him. But right. he could not stand fishing. And his father and brothers all loves fishing. So he was forced to do it. And that, I think, increased his disdain for fishing. But uh, to get to the story of how I caught my first fish and really got hooked, um, I was three years old and uh, grew up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. bounced around a little bit. Went to a couple other places. We might talk about that a little, but we were in New Jersey. I was I'm the oldest, and okay. my parents decided to take me and I think my sister was a she was a newborn, a couple months old. Um, we went to Nantucket for a few days. Okay, and uh, my dad, like I said, grew up around the water. He enjoys boats and the water. Just doesn't like fishing. So right, we we're walking around the marine basin. And he's talking to this guy about his, I think it was a Bertram International. Okay. And uh, she's so talking about the boat. And nice boats. The guy who owned the boat saw me, I was three years old, and he asked my dad, has your son ever caught a fish before? And he said, no, he hasn't. So the guy grabbed me, we walk up to the bow of the boat, and uh, I don't remember, uh, th- there's kind of some periphery, I don't. it's not a vivid memory, Yeah. but um, at the time it was like late summer, early fall. And if, you know, if you're a saltwater fisherman in the Northeast, you know, all about catching snappers, little oh, baby yeah. bluefish. Yeah. And uh, so he took me up on the bow. I think he put some spearing on a hook, pitched it out, and handed me the rod and I reeled it in. And ever since then, I, that's all I wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> so it was definitely a thorn much, in my dad's Yeah, Much to your
0: dad's dismay, right? Like Yeah.
1: But luckily uh, my grandfather, we lived in New Jersey. My grandparents are in Long Island, so not that far away. And as a kid, I would spend usually two to three weeks every summer with my grandfather. And uh, he had a few friends with boats that we would either take out with the friends, or he would run the boat sometimes. And we did a lot of party boat fishing as well, yeah, yeah. Um, almost all for fluke flounder, depending on where you're where you're located. What consider right. so did that and got into sports as a you know a little bit when I was in high school. Kind of got away from fishing a little bit. But and then I got in my college kiss. age. Yeah, you know, Thinner. I still fished, but, you know, I came back to it. It it, it was it welcomed me with open arms. It there we go. Me. That's good. Um, well, that's but, interesting. Uh, We've had so yeah. many
0: people on the podcast who they say, oh, my parents got me into it. They love to fish. They've been taking me as long as I can remember. But this is this is a new one, man. You were you are uh, an in of one for. My dad hated fishing, but I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And and it's a pretty good story, man. Like I started fishing on a Bertram when I was three. You know, you tell that story the right way. You're going to be a big dog, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's hey, one of the nicest boats uh, I've been on, too. I know. Yeah, exactly. Don't tell <laughs> that right, part. I
0: got, right? I got ruined. <laughs> yeah, that would have been one of the nicest boats I've been on, too. But um, So so, how would you get into rod building? Because this is also an interesting story, too. And I won't ruin it for everybody listening. But talk to me about that, because this came through like a, a job.
1: So uh, like I said, I got into sports in high school and uh going to college i just i thought i wanted to play football mm-hmm. so I, I uh went to uh went away to school was playing football ended up was in the upstate new york snowed a lot i didn't like it yeah. you know, it's decided to come home and go to community college before i figured out what i was doing and uh like any good parent when their kid slips up a little bit you get a little bit of a kick in the ass and your dad yeah. said hey if you're coming home you better get a job right so uh I was always into anything fish I love. So okay. I was also into aquariums as a kid. Oh, okay. So, you know, farting around at home, looking for a job. I walked into an aquarium store and uh, just so happens that I said, Hey, are you guys looking to hire anybody? So luckily they said, yeah, we need, we actually could use uh, somebody part time. So I got a job there. And uh, one of the managers there was big into fishing and we start talking There's some pretty funny stories that we could talk about. Actually, my first day of work, you probably know what an arapaima is. Oh, yeah. So we had all all sorts of really exotic freshwater and saltwater fish. Right. And this day, my first day of work, we got an order of fish in. And there was an arapaima, all sorts of crazy stuff. So Steve, the manager, says, Mike, put this in X tank. So I put it in what I thought the tank he said. Comes back about an hour later.
0: And it... It ate everybody. Mm-mm. <laughs> oh no!
1: So you know the other way around. So oh, the okay. small arapaima was only maybe uh, about 8, 10 inches at the top. Oh, okay, okay. So we finished putting the fish away. Steve looks. He said, "Hey, where'd you put that in I said, oh, "I put it in the in the tubes with the black background." So he's he looks. And he says, "Show me." So I go. I said, "It was right there." I think it might have jumped. Must have jumped out. He says, "Listen, dude. There's a there's another catfish I believe from India called a wallagoo. Okay. it's like a small Wells catfish, super predatory with a mouth that's almost as big as it. So I fed a hundred plus dollar wholesale price fish on my first day of work to another fish. And I did get fired, luckily.
0: If I got fired. I. And yet somehow this same individual, Steve Kolb, ends up
1: teaching you how to build rods. Exactly. Yeah, he, he really had a lot of faith in me. So he didn't fire me. Uh, if he had, I probably never would have started building, but Steve was a rod builder or still is. Yeah. And I get a lot of my style from him too. He does a lot of, uh, eclectic kind of things. Okay. Um, but Steve built me three rods cause I got back into fishing at that point and he was telling me how to build rods. It's like, Oh my God, this is incredible. Right. Um, I thought it was like something that was done by a machine in a factory. I didn't realize that there was a handmade aspect to all, all fishing rods. at this Oh point. Yeah. Appeal to the artist uh, in you, right? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And uh, so he built me three rods, but working, you know, like a $12 an hour job, custom rods are really not in the budget, even living in your parents' house. Right. So I asked Steve if he would kind of show me the basics. He kind of showed me, hey, this is how you blew up a handle. This is how you wrap a guide. He kind of got me started. And then from there, very, very soon after, um, I met Billy Vavona. My condolences. Yeah, well and bad about everybody right <laughs> mostly good i'm just kidding he right, I'm definitely kidding. absolutely um so met billy through that i think was stripers online at that point uh, okay and uh billy was about a 45 minute drive from me started buying some blanks from him and uh got introduced to the you know the closed decorative wraps and all mm-hmm. that stuff and then yep. that also really opened my eyes up billy always was kind of out of the, he was doing different things with guide layouts um, sure. different guides that He was buying from Japan that at the time uh, weren't imported to the States. So that was kind of a big introduction, both artistically and technically into figuring out pieces of the puzzle with Rod building.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. What a great story, man. Thanks for sharing that. So it, it obviously worked out and you obviously figured it out because uh, here we are. And so appreciate you uh, you know, indulging me and, and telling me the stories that's that's fascinating. So um, and I specifically had you on for this particular episode because like I said, I feel like you do such good work with with setting up guide trains and you're very proficient uh, with guides on top, with spirals, with some of the more difficult configurations, vertical jigging popping and stick baiting for casting, you know, you've done, of course, a bunch of distance casting surf type stuff, which is really big in the Northeast. And so it seemed like uh, you have a way of just breaking things down and keeping it simple. So I thought you'd be a great one to have on for this topic. And we get, I get so many questions about guides and guide setup, right? And I guess it's been so long since I got on a website or opened a catalog, and saw all these different sizes and all these different colors and all these different materials and all these different frame finishes rated for heavy and medium and light and ultralight and, you know, all these things, it's not so inaccessible and confusing to me anymore, but for a lot of people it is, and it can be very intimidating, right? So, you know, if, if, if that's the only thing keeping you from building rods, then, these days, you have more guide set options than you've ever had. They're very, very good. Uh, I know we sell a ton of them through places like uh, the Rod Room and Get Bid and and Bingham Enterprises and Mud Hole, and so like you, you can always get those. But I think there's always a group of. Uh, students or people seeking to understand in rod building that want to get past that a little bit and kind of understand the concept of what we're doing here. And, and, you know, what is it that makes a guide train, right? And what is it that makes a guide train work? And, and it seems so mysterious starting with a blank sheet of paper and this complicated catalog to get out of those pages and into a rod that actually works and is better than something you've made before. So like, you know, I'm just really curious, like, how do you think about, how do you think about uh, the guide sets and, and sort of what concepts would you share with us at a high level before I start diving in and asking you some more specific questions about how many guides you use, what size, how you choose materials and things like that. How do you, how do you, you do a great job with this. How do you go about doing it?
1: So this kind of has to do with spinning spiral and conventional. I, I, I kind of think about it this way is I want to have the line when the rod is bent. I want it to follow the curve of the blank as closely as possible. Yep. And it doesn't matter again, it doesn't matter if you're if you're spinning, spiral, conventional, any of those. That's probably the most important thing. Okay? And then how is the rod going to be used? So mm-hmm. think about that. And if you're obviously if you're doing a finesse presentation, you're going to want to take advantage of lightweight as much as possible. Right? It's not going to matter quite as much if you're chasing blue marlin on 130 class tackle. Right. So so there's a balance point there, and each rod is going to have a, an appropriate level of balancing weight, maybe the, um, the guide train as far as uh, how durable the guides are going to be, how resistant they are to abuse. And right. that's also going to have to do with the person that the rod is being built for, whether it's, you know, you're just a hobbyist, you're doing it for yourself, or if it's uh, as a professional and you have to kind of ask the right questions about the customer and about how the rod is going to be used. And if you stick to those principles, every rod you build, you should get a little bit better Yeah, because you're going to, you're going to, you should learn something right. So from those, from those principles.
0: Absolutely. So, so if we just start at a simple level, that's super helpful. So one of the first questions is how do I know how many guides I need, right? So talk to me about how you think about number of guides.
1: So as a real general rule of thumb, uh, with the more traditional, shall we say, guide layouts, which I would say at this point is uh, the new guide concept is, that's pretty much the standard.
0: The new normal, Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I learned on. Um, I've been building, I think, six, 15, uh, 16 or 17 years now. Yeah. And and I, that's right around that time when those guides came out. Right and, at the uh, time. So that's yeah. that's kind of what I learned. So a really good rule of thumb for a conventional or spiral wrapped rod is going to be, at least for me, it's going to be the length of the blank in feet. Uh, add one guide to that and then add your tip. If you do that, with the, you know your traditional non micro style guides on a conventional or a spiral you're probably and and you don't have some wildly varying spacing you're going to be able to follow that curve of the blank and take advantage of the you know take take advantage of the power in the blank sensitivity but also not add too much weight for spinning you're going to be, it's going to be a little bit different. Typically, I'm going to use a few less guides if we're doing a, an NGC layout. Mm-hmm. With the more finesse presentations, I really love the the KLH guides, the KR mm-hmm. concept. Right. On a seven foot rod, I think I'm using typically nine guides plus the tip because they're okay. so much smaller and more lightweight. Right. So you could take advantage of that. Right. Uh, but that's a really good starting point. So conventional or spiral, the length of the blank in feet. Add a guide and add a tip.
0: So a seven foot rod, one guide for each of the seven feet, that's seven guides. Add one more guide, that's eight and a tip, right? Yeah. Yep. So and, yep. as a and, starting place, right?
1: Exactly. And of course, that's not going to apply for all all rods. Um, sure. If you're going to use like, let's say you're going down to size six running guides, you may have to add a guide. Um, I typically, if I have a, a very fast action rod, mm-hmm. I may add a, add a guide as well because because of the extreme nature of that bend in in that tip section of the rod
0: right and what mike's referring to is when you have a parabolic or very evenly bending rod that very progressively bends the more weight you add to it you never really create any acute angles when you have what we call a very fast action rod where a significant amount of the bend is in the first third of the rod let's say you can actually get a pretty sharp angle where it transitions from the part that bends to the part that doesn't and that can that can do some things that might at rest look wonky with your spacing, but when you load the rod, you see, again, that line following very closely. Um, yeah, so so super helpful. That's a great guideline to get started for both spiral, guides on top, conventional, and the spinning. So how, how do you, like, what advice would you give people? How do you think about sizes? Like, t- talk to me about how you're how you're going about sizes because we get lots of questions about this too.
1: Again, the most important thing is, like, And this isn't always possible because, hey, if you're I'm going to uh, the Amazon and I've never done that fishing before, you're not going to understand as intimately how the rod's going to be used. Right. But if it you know, so the more information you have about how the rod's going to be used, the better. So sizing of guides on a conventional or spiral layout, the most important thing there to know, in my opinion, is are you going to be passing knots through the guides Right. Um, because you don't want to, you don't want to get snagged when you're reeling a fish in, causing you to pause and maybe lose the fish because you're not applying proper pressure. Um, that's a big consideration. Also, you don't want to use guides that are too small. Maybe for, you know, you wouldn't want to use like a size six guide on a tuna jigging rod because the guide frame and you know itself might not be strong enough to withstand the forces that are going to be required of it so really how i think the biggest one is not clearance for conventionals at least
0: okay so so go as small as you can while still being able to do your job and pass any connections or knots that you're going to have when you're fishing the rod the way it's intended. absolutely
1: and then with spinning obviously it's going to have to do with the size of the spool casting and also it'll have to do with the guide system i'll say that you're going to employ, if you're going to use a new guide concept, if you're going to use a uh, KR concept, if you're going to use KW, um, you want to be able to optimize casting distance, obviously, when we are using spinning most of the time. So you need to use an appropriate, especially stripper guide, uh, and then reduction train to optimize casting distance okay. when you're using spinning. Super
0: helpful. There's also lots of different frame styles, right? That can be dazzling. There's single foots, there's double foots, you know, all these kinds of things. How do you go about determining what style of frame uh, or type of guide
1: you're using when you're setting these things up? So for me, as as a professional rod builder, I'm building for all sorts of people. So I need to talk to them about how they're going to use a rod. Um, One of the, the most important things for me when I'm building for a customer is like, are they abusive to the gear, and that that's going to have to do with not only the style of frame I'm going to choose, but the material of the frame I'm going to use as well. Okay. So if somebody is McGilla Gorilla, I'm <laughs> probably not going to give them a single foot guide train um, right. unless it's a super light application right. where you know for finesse fishing and if, if you don't use those style guides, it's really going to affect the rod. Right. Um, so whenever I can, I try to go as light as possible but take into account how the rod's going to be used the actual user the application right Um, that's that's what i'm looking at so double foot guides typically going to be a little bit heavier duty Mm -hmm. um and there's different frame i guess you could say uh rigidity and and Mm -hmm. duty within Mm -hmm. different guides um i really like the the new uh, KWL or Mm -hmm. m's Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: i like those frames a lot for your lighter salt butter right. um, stuff conventional spiral wrap and then also sometimes'll we'll, i'll go to a single foot at the tip to save some weight and also sometimes i will do a double foot high frame let's say a k frame guide because that's a the higher frame guide it's going to be a little more susceptible to getting hit on the back of a car seat when they're putting the rod in and out right um so but then I'll go to a single frame foot guide at the tip to save weight to kind of get a little bit more durability, but also save weight at the tip, which is where it's most important. Um, The other thing that, and this to me may be counterintuitive, sometimes with guys who are abusive with their gear, I tend to move away from titanium depending on what that abuse is. Um, And really the reason for that is titanium, when it gets bent I guess it has, it's not as resilient to being bent back and forth. So you get a little bit less life out of. Takes more to bend back. it,
0: but may not respond as well. Yeah. To be exactly. straightened out. Right.
1: And obviously, if it's just a matter of like, hey, I don't wash my gear very often. Yeah. Um, and they're willing to spend the money on the titanium. I'm all in with titanium. I love yeah. the added options that you have in the frame styles. I think right. some of them make a tremendous, um, not just a weight savings, but uh, the different frames really make a, Awesome casting uh, yeah. and also for some of the, the spiral wrap and the vertical jigging, uh, slow pitch rods, the frames available are awesome when applied in those situations. Yeah.
0: And so I think this is, makes a lot of sense to most anglers and probably to most builders. But, you know, if, if I pick like an extreme example, obviously. A rod that's being fished only out of a boat, you know, that never uh, goes in a holder or, you know, gets beat up is very different than some of these Northeastern pier and jetty fishermen that are waiting, wearing wetsuits and dry suits and taking, getting pounded on the surf on slippery rocks. Right. Like, that rod's going to take a punch, right? There's mm-hmm. someone's going to fall, somebody's going to drop it, somebody's going to get hung up, you know. So, you got to take all those things into consideration, uh, when you're building the rod. And so, a pier fishing can be tough. Uh, kayak fishing is another one that's like, you know, they're going to be high st- sticking next to the boat, you know, they're going to dump the boat at some point and they may get beat up in transport or whatever. So, yeah, th- th- those are the kind of things he's talking about, right? So, it's not any great mystery, as, he, as he's saying. You know, if you, if you talk to the angler about how they fish, where they fish, maybe they show you some of their other equipment. You know, I I think it's always useful to be asking them like, what do you, what rod do you have now that you like the best? And why are you coming to me for something different? What is it not doing? You know, so just asking a few questions and paying attention, obviously, as Mike said, I think it gets a lot easier with time and experience, and certainly it's easier when you've had a lot of personal experience with that fishing application, right? If you got 10,000 hours jigging, then you know exactly what someone's talking about when they start talking about what they need in a jigging rod, right? Maybe not so much the peacock bass fishing in the Amazon basin in, in Brazil or whatever you've heard to earlier. Exactly. But yeah, no. So it's it's not an infinite number of variables, but I think that's a really good, simple way to, to break it down there, Mike. Understanding what they're going to do, use the fewest and smallest guides you can that pass the knots and then understand that, a lot of the decisions are going to be made for you. Intelligent component selection decision is going to be made by what, what people are, or how they're doing it and what they're using, how they're using the rod. Right. Another one that I think gets tricky and, and I'm too close to this one because I nerd out and I talk about, I can talk about Rockwell hardness and friction coefficients and heat dissipation, and all this stuff. Cause I'm, I'm in the guide business. Right. But, um, how do you go about the rings, right? And I think a lot of times, maybe if I frame this question up in in a more simple way, the way a lot of people think of it, let's just pick on Fuji guides for a second. Well, you got these K plus O Fuji guides and they're really inexpensive, but they look good. Then you've got Alkanite guides and they're more expensive and they look good too. And then you've got some SIC guides and they're even more expensive and they look good. And then you start adding titanium frames with either SIC or Torzite rings and they can get really expensive and they look like, you know, how do you think about. I think sometimes people get confused about those different materials and those different price points. Um obviously you've spoken some about that with kind of understanding what the use is and how much do they need performance versus durability? A budget is a reality for everybody, right? So sometimes it's I need to build out the door at this dollar amount. What's the best thing you can get me to meet meet that? But just to help the audience a little bit, which is going to mostly be builders, mostly a lot of newer builders in some cases, how do you how would you encourage people to think about the different price points and levels of performance that you get when you buy these different ring materials and frame materials
1: well first thing i'll say is that at this point we're all really blessed to have the technology that we have i mean the yeah. ceramics have come so far yeah you, you mentioned the concept O guides i mean mm-hmm. they can do almost anything that application-wise that any of the other rings can do they may not do it as well um, right so that's where you're going to, and you, you probably know more about, because you said, like, all the hardness and some of the, the polish and heat dissipation. Um, so my general understanding, at least from Fuji, is that all the rings you guys are selling now are going to be fine for braided line. That's correct. Uh, yeah. You're never going to have a problem with braided line as far as, a, you're never going to have a, a groove being cut into the guide. That, that's not a problem that exists correct. with Fuji guys at this not point. Not anymore, yeah. Right. So, when when so you take that out of the equation now we have to take in what you really need to think about are weight mm-hmm. which ties a lot into the, the frame material as well sure but also the, the ring thickness uh the different materials are going to be different thickness with torzite being the thinnest i believe right um and yeah, let's un, let's
0: something. unpack that for a second. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had kind of forgotten that and we'll we'll land on this. There's a few things in rod building that don't make a ton of sense, right? <laughs> One of them is tip tops have two sizes, right? And the first number in the size is the size of the ring and the second is the size of the tube. And for some reason, even though the tubes are manufactured in increments of millimeters, we refer to them as 60 fourths of an inch, including half 60 fourths of an inch. So uh, right. a, a, a size six, six uh, tip top has a size six ring and a six tube, uh, which makes no sense. Cause I think that's like 2.6 uh, millimeter anyway. Mm, so there's some weirdness that, right? there. The other one that's weird is that we actually, when we measure the size of these rings, we talk about sizes, the bigger number is a larger guide. So a four or 50 is a huge guide, right? And then a size six or a five or a five and a half or a four is a very small guide. But regardless of whether it's a big or a small guide, we actually size the guide is referring to the size of the outside diameter of the ring. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it feels like the effective measure is how big the aperture is, right? Like how big is the opening that line and then knots and everything can go through. But we do measure them from the outside. That's nobody's fault it's arbitrary how long is an inch well it used to be the king's thumb and a foot was about the size of the king's foot so like it's this is what we're all using right but uh it is worth noting because that is one of the things you get with some of these higher end guides because they're slicker because they're stronger because they dissipate heat better and they're uh more sort of uh shock and fracture resistant if we were to look at a k plus o size 10 guide And a titanium Torzite size 10 guide. And I'm just picking the the, the full spectrum of Fuji guides from the most aggressively priced to the best guide in the world, literally, period. Uh, And the only uh, ceramic that was ever designed from the ground up specifically for fishing rods. That's Torzite. And nobody will argue that. It's interesting because the, the Torzite ring is so small. Uh, and is so small in profile and light and weight that it actually is like using a size bigger guide when you compare the opening or the aperture in those guides. Right. So Absolutely. there is some performance you get weight reduction and also size which translates into weight and better aerodynamics and, you know, all those kinds of things. So there is some technical nuance there. It's a good point. And again, I I try to mostly keep it simple. And we'll have lots of other episodes diving into specific types of guide trains. We're going to post a lot of guide recipes with certain types of rods, that we're teaching people how to build and and giving blueprints and recipes for, but it is a good point, right? All these things, if there is a difference, if you weigh them, if you measure them, if you uh, look at their performance characteristics, as you said, they're all plenty good for braided line, but there is definitely a pretty significant increase in performance, longevity, those kinds of things, weight, most specifically Mm -hmm. performance and weight as you, as you move up. But there's a there's a higher price too, and there's there's just kind of no getting around. You get what you pay for, right? So, so I,
1: I mean, to that point, I would say like a, a good general rule of thumb for me. I build a lot of high end rods. You do not a lot, but the and rods they're I build are are high end. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, I'm, budget is always a consideration, mm-hmm. but it, you know, so I'm typically toward that that higher end range. And mm-hmm. for me, the performance of for an inshore rod of an alkanite ring, it's going to do everything I need to do and more, yeah. at a relatively affordable price. It's right. available in a wide r- range of styles of, of frame. It really fills that that niche very well for yeah. me. Yeah. And then, on my offshore builds when I'm building a lot of speed jigging, vertical jigging stuff, tuna popping, mm-hmm. GT.
0: Extreme applications, right. Yeah. Right.
1: Um, where, where the fish swim extremely fast, I'm going to go with an SIC ring. At the very lowest. Right. Uh, and then if the customer is willing to spend the money, I'm going to go to Torzite. Right. Or, or sometimes I'll do SIC titanium. And then if they, hey, if they really want to go all out, obviously we're going to go with Torzite. Um, It is lighter. It's going to give better knot clearance for the same size guy. Right. Yeah. It, it's an amazing product. Yeah, just but it yeah, in realism, it's not going to be forever. It costs, yeah, it's too expensive. Right.
0: And and Mike brings up an interesting point. I would just kind of throw this out there for people. And this isn't exactly today's topic, but you know, when you're a full-time rod builder and Mike is blessed with based on the quality of his work and his loyal following, he's he's got to wait. You don't just go to Mike and ask him to build your rod and you get it next week. And he's earned that over time. But what that means is he's busy, right? And and one of the things I think we forget as Uh, entry-level rod builders sometimes is if you spin it forward a little bit and you get to where you're as busy as you can be, whether that's as a full-time professional with a shop or whether that's as an individual person who only has a few hours a month to work on rods, it takes you just as much time to build a rod with very inexpensive components that you can only sell at a low price point. It takes you exactly as much time as it does to build a premium rod on a premium blank with the highest end components, right? And so your time almost becomes your rate limiting factor and so i'm just i'm just going to call that out a little bit that as a very successful professional rod builder there's a lesson there for all of us that mike's not really seeking or spending a lot of his time on budget builds because it doesn't make sense right and he's making it worth his time and he's earned that reputation and his work is absolutely immaculate and artistically beautiful so he can command whatever price he wants but there's there's a lesson there i know we're talking about guides but i'll put it there uh tom kirkman the editor of rod maker magazine was looking at one of my rods when i was a young guy years and years ago and he said what would you sell this rod for and i told him and he said when was the last time Somebody turned you down based on price. And I said, Well, never. And he said, Your price is too low. Here's what I would charge for this rod. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. And thankfully, he was credible enough. Uh, You know, a lot of people said that to me. And I would have been like, Oh, this Joker, what is he talking about? But when Tom talks, I listen. And so uh, that was the day I changed my pricing strategy. But um, (laughs) anyway, so, well, super helpful. So we talked a little bit about the number of guides we talked about. Let's talk about this, too, because we we throw this around static deflection. Right. And by static deflection, we mean like temporarily affixing the guides to the blank, usually with masking tape, sometimes with rubber bands or dental ligatures or something and sort of putting the guides we think we want to use in the place we think they need to be. And then in a static way, just bending it. And, uh, and, we'll, and we can link um an article here in the in the description of the podcast to to some pictures and, and how to set up and static deflect. But that's one way. But then also how much does like test casting and more dynamic testing of the guide train come into play for you? And again, I think I know the answer because I've seen how well your guide trains are set up. But I just want to ask it and let you let it come straight from the horse's mouth.
1: So I don't do that as much as I used to because I'm building on a lot of the same blanks Well and you and figured it so out. Same right. reels. Yeah, so the, for the formula is kind of kind of there. Um, but a couple things I'll say, uh, static deflection is extremely important. There are incorrect ways to do static deflection. Mm, oh, tell me uh, more. So, um, uh, and this comes from, from Billy because, uh, Billy Vavone again, if a lot guys, you know, I've seen guys do static deflection where they'll, they'll run the line through the blank. They, you know, they put the guys where they think they should go. Right. They, they run the line through the blank, then they make the mistake of instead of pulling on the, on the line. They pull on the tip with their hands, hmm. and what that does, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think it would make it an, the smallest bit of difference, but because the, the, I guess the dynamic forces are being applied differently. It's being when you grab it from the tip, you're pulling on the tip, right? As opposed to when you pull on the line, the line is making contact, and that's where the force is being applied on each guide surface. For sure. Um, and when you do that you change the action the, the, the blank shows its true action when you pull on it through the line right so you may think you have the proper static deflection when you pull on the tip but you're actually not the, the rod is not going to bend that way yeah. when you bend with the guide so so that's an important consideration yeah so I, I'm a big proponent of static deflection and you can take some shortcuts if you built a rod before and it, and you're building, it could be a different blank, but maybe it beds very close. You could probably steal the same spacing. And it depends right. on how, how much effort you want to put in rod building is all about what you want to make of it. If right. you just want to, like you said before, if you just want to grab a pre-packed guide set and go right off of the formula, that's on that for the spacing, um, especially they're, with they're spacing available now. System, yeah. A spacing system, like the, the KR concept, Right. I mean, you can almost as long as you put those numbers in properly on on your GPS, um, you're going to have a rod that that's going to cast well, and and it doesn't matter if it's very fast or if it's very moderate, with very accept- few exceptions. That that blank is going to bend yeah. great, yeah, it's going to be great. But static deflection is very important. Test casting, in my opinion, I don't build a whole lot of surf rods, so mm-hmm. I'll say that I I'm sure that there are. There's definitely merit to, especially when distance is really an important factor in what you're building. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to want to test casts, Different reels, different uh, different pound line on the same reel. It's going to act right. differently. Sure. Floro yeah. versus so no
0: mono, way... mono versus braid. Right. Oh, all yeah. I mean, shock oh, leader, but, no yeah. shock leader. Right. Yeah.
1: Huge, huge. You know, those are very important things. Right. And again, that, that all goes also into your guide selection size, frame style, all that. Right. Right. I really am a b- big believer just get that line with a spinning reel, at least get that line choked down as quickly as you can within yep. reason. Right. And then if you do that, you're going to eliminate a lot of oscillation, dragged through the guide rings and the oscillation of the blank up and down. So you're just going to, once that you cast, that tip is going to go down and up and then straight. Yep. And that, as long as your, your stripper guide isn't way out of whack, it's going to really help with casting. Yep. And sometimes, you know, too, building you might have a let's say i got a guy who's going to go to uh, the seychelles for gts okay and they you know i build them a seven foot six popping rod for, i want to go <laughs> you want to go
0: <laughs> i want to go
1: Me can too. i go with him yeah yeah we'll go there and then we'll go to oman and a few other places perfect Maldives. But, but, uh, let's go yeah we'll do the whole gamut we'll do the pacific ramp there we go yeah but, uh, but uh you know sometimes the guy is going to use maybe he's got a, a fourteen thousand stella and he's got an eighteen thousand saltiga, and or maybe he's even got the same size but different manufacturers. The spools are going to be a little different. sweeps
0: different. Yeah, they're, right. They're
1: gonna, so it, the line may come off the spool a little bit different. So you also have to take it. Yeah, you might be able to tweak it if you know that's the only reel the guy's going to use, the only the only line he's going to use. Yeah. Um But sometimes you don't, or somebody hey well, we're going to upgrade. So you got to kind of find like a happy medium sometimes. Right. That's going to work for that general, that general application. And typically the faster you can choke that line down within reason, the better the rod's going to cast overall. And it's going to save weight, make it easier to fish as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so like, just again, share, if you don't mind sharing kind of with us your process. And again, I, I ask because I, I feel like you do it so well. So we talked how you figure out about how many you need or a starting place. you adjust from there. We've talked about sizes and styles. We talked a little bit how you decide based on the application and the budget, which which frames materials and ring styles and materials you're gonna have and everything else. So let's say you're setting up a rod and you've got the guide trained. How, how do you know when you're done? Like what's the process the inspection process you go through in that part of the build so you're like, all right, these guides are right. I'm going to wrapping.
1: Okay, so like I, you know, like I said, a lot of times I don't do that now because I have the formula. Because you've built 100 of them, them. right, but, yeah. But let's say it's a completely new new blank, and maybe it's an application that I'm not 100% familiar with or how the guy's going to use it. So I'm going to start from scratch. So first thing I'm going to do is, all right, knots, no knots. Uh, let's say we're going to build a spiral wrap rod. Knots or no knots? And if so, how heavy are the you knots? Is, is he fishing? Obviously, if he's fishing a 30-pound fluorocarbon leader, It's very, very different knot than if he's fishing, you know, 130 pound top shot. Right. So we're going to have to take into account the diameter of the knot. Are knots being passed? How heavy are the? is the leader? How big is the knot going to be? And from there, I can decide what's the appropriate guide frame. Is it going to be a single foot KT to KB to uh, RV? Or am I going to do something more of an MN frame? Uh, So we're going to pick that based upon... The dot clearance needed and, and how heavy duty the rod is really. Right. Yeah. We're going to kind of usually, I'm going to bend the rod, have a point of reference from building other rods. A Mm -hmm. good point. If you've never done it before and you don't have a a chart, maybe is look at a similarly built uh, factory rod. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're going to have less guides than I would put on. Sure. From an optimal standpoint. Right. Um, So maybe buy an extra one or two. Uh, Again, we talked about that length of the blank plus one guide, plus a tip. That's usually, you're, if you do that, you're going to have enough guides. You may want to buy one more, one extra, usually not too expensive. It's good to have in, in case something happens where you're going to need it. Absolutely. Um, and then i will get a static deflect from there. Um, so I'm going to tape my guides on. Make sure you have adequate tape because you're going to exert. You don't want to just barely bend the blank. You want to load that rod up like it would be when you're fishing it. So you're going to need to have adequate amount of tape so your guides don't pop off when you're bending the rod. Um, once you're there, bend the rod and make sure you don't have any severe angles. It comes in handy sometimes if you don't have somebody with you to take a picture. If you have like a little a stand for your camera, set it on a timer, flex the rod, take a photo. You yeah. can review it. And then you can tweak your guides back or forth. Maybe you need to add a guide. Maybe you can get away with one less. Um, that's, I think, the, the best way to do it um, is really that the trial and error and uh, once you get there, you should be good to go. Excellent.
0: Interesting. You make it sound so simple, right? But again, you got to kind of weave all this together. And, and what he's talking about is with that there's always a bias towards the fewest and smallest guides that will do the job, right? So that's what we're starting with is making sure we, we have a bias towards not too many not too large, not too heavy, just because of the, the impact it has, the weight and all that on the efficiency of the rod blank. So
1: so for me too, uh, and it depends on the application, if I'm building something super light, because I'm using, let's say, titanium size four runners, small, I make yeah. 10, right. So like I'm using for uh, either fresh water or like uh, ultralight flounder fishing. Sure. I'm fishing a quarter ounce jig head. Um, sometimes I'll add an extra guide yeah. because the, it, it's adding so little weight. And it's gonna create uh it's gonna follow the, the quarter of the blank more more uh true. Yeah. Um I may add the extra blank. Also stuff where it's like kinda extreme angles, for example, a vertical a vertical jigging blank. Um, mm-hmm. we all mm-hmm. seen the we've all seen the marketing videos and photos of guys putting extreme, ridiculous, inappropriate, in my opinion, bends in these blanks. <laughs> um so Hey, blame I the Amberjack. Don't blame me. The, <laughs> yeah. so uh, and it's amazing that the technology that the blanks can handle that can now. tolerate but, it right yeah um in my opinion like if maybe i'm going to add an extra guide in there um i'm going to use the smallest that i can uh, that's appropriate i'm going to use the lightest frame that i can that's appropriate yep. Yep. but i feel like i'm going to protect the blank a little bit better by yeah. by the because if you add one more guide if you're using seven guides or six guides and you add seven That's one. I guess one seventh the degree. a Pretty significant distribution of the load. Yeah. Right. So you're So it's going to take a little bit of pressure off the off that, uh, especially in like really bad high stick situation. So, I think that and there's there's a balance. You don't want to add too much weight, and that's one of the reasons too. A lot of uh, if you look at like a similar build that I build for some of these applications versus the factory build, they'll have bigger running guides, but they'll have one less guy
0: that fewer of on, them like, right yeah
1: popping so i'll i'll go down a size it's still going to be fine for knock clearance yeah. but because i'm using a smaller one it's not quite as heavy right and you can also trim weight uh, doing things like making your guide wraps a little bit shorter.
0: Ironically, you can, yeah, you can, you can use more guides and have it weigh less and give you more performance on a host of fronts. Yeah, and yeah, and, so some, and we all say we don't want a high stick, and you're not going to high stick and everything else, but I can happens. tell you, uh when I've been pulling on a 170 pound yellowfin for two hours on a popper, like
1: and, I'm being, and he runs like, under I, the boat, yeah, at the, at the boat, yeah. Who
0: knows what's going to happen, right? I'm not going to be a picture of perfect form. Exactly. Everywhere. Exactly. And I, <laughs> yeah. So again, I, I think that's just the kind of really thoughtful uh, design and, and intelligent kind of uh, engineering and layout that helps these rods be so successful. And in, in, in this would help build you such a great reputation. That's awesome. You, you also, I'll, I'll pick on you a little bit. And I know we, we always like to stay positive and, and focus on good things. But by virtue of all your work with the NURBS, like you've done a ton of workshops with Billy, you guys have taught so many people. Maybe not so many Well, from scratch, but certainly have worked a lot with people who are already building to help them clean up and optimize what they're doing. And and I just hear rave reviews about these NURBS events. If you, I've been to the ones that we host in Foley, Alabama every year. I guess we've done three of them now. You, in the spirit of somebody, everybody knows something, nobody knows everything. Like, I don't care how long you've been building or how much work you put in, you can learn something at these events and it's amazing. And like Billy himself, just a wealth of, knowledge and tricks. And he knows so many builders and he learned from so many of the greats. Like he's just, it's, it's always interesting that if you've not been any of these gatherings, I highly encourage you to go, uh, have thick skin and be ready for constructive criticism, but that's why you're there is to get better. Right. And you can do that. But to that end, you've seen a lot of rods and you've worked with a lot of builders to help them get better, not singling anybody out or anything like that. But like, when you think about the common mistakes you see in guide train setups, or like, the most common pitfalls or mistakes with people that are starting to try to figure this stuff out and maybe don't get it quite right. Any, any lookouts or call outs there based on all the rods you've seen and, and the kind of things you're doing to help people get that kinks out of their system.
1: Definitely. I mean, uh, and, and that's just not to say that there is one right way to build any, sure, sure. any one rod. Obviously there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm the Always. first to admit it. Always. And, and I, I encourage people to, to try different things. Um, and to see what the advantages and disadvantages are. And that's how you're going to learn and how, how you're going to get better. Um, really, the the, the most uh, glaringly apparent things I see with, with especially new builders are, I think sometimes they don't do, got, they either aren't doing, they're not doing their static spacing, you know, not testing it out. Or if they are, they're not putting the appropriate bend in a rod. Um, I see this actually too for some. Meaning some not flexing
0: it fully enough to check the way the line follows yeah
1: or or like putting it in a maybe they're they may be uh let's say they're building a, a light tuna jigging rod they may okay. put to 40 pounds of drag on the reel but if you have it at an angle where you're pulling at let's say 45 degrees from the butt you're not really flexing the rod the way it's going to be flexed with that kind of under that much drag right yeah so so i mean not that you need to use like a deadlift but i think that's more of an appropriate way to look at guide spacing yeah when you're doing it you know some guys will have like a clamp uh clamp to the bench um just kind of try to get uh, the way i try to do it is get like a a 90 degree from that line Mm -hmm. to the butt butt of your rod right flex it you know in an appropriate manner how the drag is gonna so you get a little bit of a drag slip so you can see that um another big mistake i see guys using is just guides that maybe aren't appropriate for the build typically it's not guides that are too light for the build um because honestly unless somebody hits a guide like a single foot guide uh, you could put a tremendous amount of pressure on a guide especially if you have the adequate number they're not going to pull out Uh, i've never ever had a guide pull out unless it was hit or got uh, let's say a wind knot looped it and pulled it out
0: I could say I've never had one pulled out until we were slow pitch jigging last Sunday. And then uh, I, I had one pulled. That's the first one of mine has ever come out. I'm still sore about that. But uh, anyway, I have yeah. had
1: one similarly. I was bridge fishing down here in Florida with a, with a spiral wrapped rod. And I had a fish. The snook pulled me into the pilings and I had them on, but I couldn't get on. So I tried to, to just straight pull them out with my thumb on the spool and yank them. And the line broke. And when the line broke, I guess it wrapped around the guide and somehow it Hold out it was a single oh, foot guy it, it was it's crazy but yeah, yeah. It was a, that was the first one i had but anyway so typically guys don't use guides that are too light they typically go too heavy in my yeah
0: opinion. okay yep i um, agree like
1: let's say like an hb or an hn frame on a 20 to 40 pound bottom fishing rod it, it, sometimes that is appropriate know your audience if you've got a right. guy who's gonna break everything that's possible you know he's breaking uh what wireframe guides maybe you want to do an hn frame guide <laughs> but but for the average person that's going to add weight um it's it's stiffer than it needs to be for that kind of black action blank so typically i see a lot of guys they'll not a lot but i see a mistake where they put guides that are just heavier than they need they're yeah. they're over doing it yeah um and also within not necessarily the guide the guides themselves but when they wrap the guides um i see a lot of guys that. They don't, I don't, maybe they don't realize that like the more thread you have on that guide, the more epoxy you're going to use and the heavier it's going to be. And the more that's going to, it's going to be amplified when you, when you put that out to the tip. Right. So yeah, try to, you know, you want to, you want to be artistic with it. Great. I do a ton of trim on my guides, but I do try to keep them as short as possible within reason. Right. And then don't put a ton of finish on, just coat those threads. Um, and again, use, use an appropriate guide. You don't need the heaviest guide available for a, a moderate rod, moderate duty rod.
0: And again, this is all about weight, right? It's all about reducing weight. So you enhance the performance of the rod. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Well, there, that is some really, really good advice. So man, Mike, I just, uh, fascinating listening to you talk about this. I'm taking a couple of notes. I'm I'm learning something as we go here. And I, I, I love that. It's, uh, fascinating stuff and again you do beautiful work congratulations on your global rod building ambassador award that's uh that's awesome and because i know we've mentioned him a couple of times and i didn't i didn't compliment him billy's gonna be billy vivone is gonna be mad at me billy is also one of these six people around the globe outside of japan who who received that uh, award so uh we love you billy and we're recognizing you don't don't get we upset right that's right So, uh, hey, man, thank you so much. I I can guarantee you that we will have you back again to cover some more topics. And uh, I I really look forward to those conversations. So thanks so much for the time. If you want to learn more about Mike, you can just Google Garone Custom Rods he has my absolute endorsement is one of the few builders I would actually pay him uh, to build me a rod just so I could put it in the museum collection and say I had one. Uh, he, he does beautiful work. And, uh, again, Mike, just such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Bill. You're too kind. I really appreciate it. Being on yeah.
0: For once I'm telling the truth. It's, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's great. Thanks for your time. We'll talk soon. All right.
1: All right, Bill. Thanks. Take care. All right.
0: Well, that's it for this week's edition of the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to like and subscribe wherever you download your podcast content. We'll see you next week.